Uh, once again, I want to reiterate that this podcast is not intended to be an extremely elaborate or detailed account of any of the events that I cover over the course of the podcast. All it is is supposed to be a crash course in all of the events that took place that I cover. So, if you want to learn more about anything that I cover on this podcast, I almost want to say visit your local library, but I'm not going to say that. But feel free to do your own research. I always encourage that. So, with that being said, enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I am Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened as per usual. I started this podcast because I love history, and I want to see how everything fits together and why it all matters to understand and know about it, because there is a common saying that if we forget where we came from, we won't be able to see where we're going. Or, you know, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Now, I don't necessarily agree wholeheartedly with that statement, but I do think it's important to understand when things happen the way that they do and to look for patterns in history. So, today we're going to be talking about the Berlin Wall. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this one. Um, so, to fully understand why the Berlin Wall became a symbol of division in Europe. The events that transpired to lead to its construction do have to be clarified, so I'm going to talk about that a little bit. We have to go all the way back to World War II, even a little bit into World War I. So, uh, in May of 1945, World War II in Europe came to an end. While the United States would still have to refocus its forces entirely on Japan along with the Russian invasion of Manchuria, and eventually drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to officially bring an end to the war altogether in August of the same year, May of 1945 spelled the end of hostilities on the European continent, brought about by a joint invasion of Central Europe by American, British, Commonwealth, uh, French, Polish, Norwegian, Belgian, Danish, and Greek forces, among others on the Western Front, and the massive attack on the Eastern Front by Soviet forces. With Germany surrounded from on all sides, with nearly all territories lost and their Italian allies to the south soundly beaten, Adolf Hitler committed suicide, and Nazi Germany surrendered. As the victorious Allies did not yet trust the creation of a new German government in the crippled country, we saw what happened after the end of Versailles and World War I, they decided to occupy the territories in a joint venture, with spheres of influence taking charge of various segments in the country. It was complicated, and the lines drawn up have roots that date back to World War I. See, near the end of World War I, as the new Russian government made a dramatic exit from the war as a result of mounting problems on the home front, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was signed, where Bolsheviks, newly in power, if you've listened to my Russian re Revolution episode, you'll see you know what I'm talking about, or if you know a lot about Russian history, you'll know what the Bolsheviks are. Even if you don't know a lot about history, you'll know what the Bolsheviks are. But the Bolsheviks, newly in power, ceded control of Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, and Finland to the Central Powers in exchange for their unconditional withdrawal from the conflict. At the end of the war, all territories ceded to Germany from that treaty were liberated. It's possible that Russia could have taken control of these territories, but the country was in the midst of a brutal civil war, and while there was not yet a clear winner, the other allies did not yet recognize the Bolshevik government as legit. So the Soviet Union was not included in the peace talks following the end of the war. So Estonia, Latvia, Finland, Poland, and several other territories, they enjoyed independence for the next decade. 
But in 1939, the Soviet Union had signed a secret non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany with a special protocol within that, following the end of the war, would return these lost territories to the Soviet Union while splitting Romania and Ukraine between Germany and the Soviets. In September of 1939, Hitler invaded Poland and Stalin quickly followed suit. Hitler invaded from the west, Stalin invaded from the east. They split the country down the middle and the pact seemed to be working. But Hitler had no intention of ending the war on good terms with the Soviets and was using the non-aggression pact as a ruse to knock the allies on the Western Front out of the war with his unified force before turning on Russia afterward. Fortunately, Hitler underestimated Stalin, and when Stalin occupied the Baltic states in 1940, much earlier than anticipated, Hitler considered it a violation of the non-aggression pact and declared war on the Soviet Union. Now, Hitler was fighting a war on three fronts, in North Africa, France, and the Soviet Union. Stalin used Hitler's overextension as an opportunity to take back what he felt was rightfully Russian territory. He annexed the, Bal the Baltic states, Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, and several other countries in the Balkan states. Now just remember, the Baltic states and the Balkan states are two different places. The Baltic states are Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, and the Balkan states are Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, Albania, Croatia, those, that area. That's more for me than for anybody else, if I'm being totally honest about it. As the war came to a close, Stalin noticed that there were significant tensions between his communist country and the other capitalist allies. He became apprehensive of another war breaking out in Europe and set into action one of the most devious plans in his reign, the Warsaw Pact. Now, the Warsaw Pact was a treaty signed between the various communist countries in Eastern Europe following the end of World War II and is pretty commonly believed to have been an answer to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. With the Soviet Union at the forefront, the countries of Bulgaria, Albania, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Poland, and Hungary all joined that pact. I consider this a devious plan of Stalin's creation because following the end of the war, Stalin fostered socialist ideological groups in each of these countries and gave them the means necessary to take control of their respective governments, creating a wall of nations aligned with the ideologies of the Soviet Union between the West Allies and the East Allies, effectively establishing a buffer zone between the Soviet Union and the rest of Western Europe. So if war were to break out in any capacity, the Allies in the West would have a lot of ground to cover before even reaching the Soviet Union. During this time, the Allies had finally decided on how to divide Germany up for these zones of occupation. Britain, France, and the United States would occupy Western Germany, and the Soviet Union would occupy Eastern Germany. But Berlin was a bit tricky. It was the largest city in the country, and the Allies were wary of Stalin having complete control over that city. So they elected to divide Berlin up in a similar fashion with Britain, France, and the United States taking control of West Berlin and the Soviet Union occupying East Berlin. It wouldn't be too bad because the countries were allies after all, right? Well, not quite. Some of the alliances forged in World War II were based on an enemy-of-my-enemy enemy mentality, meaning that they weren't necessarily buddy-buddy with each other, but rather had a mutual enemy in Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, and Imperial Japan. Once the Axis powers had been soundly defeated, 
the Allies could turn their attention to their differences, primarily communism versus capitalism. The Soviet Union had prided itself on transforming from a destitute monarchy to a highly industrialized communist war machine in the last decade, and had indoctrinated its public into believing that capitalism was the root of all evil. Conversely, Britain, the United States, France, and their allies had also indoctrinated their citizens into believing that communism was the root of all evil, seeing as how Stalin had very quickly become a ruthless dictator when given control of his communist nation. Within two years, this fundamental mutual distrust had resulted in the beginning of what would come to be known as the Cold War. And when the United States introduced the Marshall Plan, an economic rescue program that would jumpstart reparations in Europe, firing up their market economies, it was the last straw for the communist Soviet Union. 20 million Soviet lives had been lost, dwarfing comparisons to any other nation participating in the war, and Stalin wasn't about to financially bail out the nation he just defeated after suffering catastrophic losses. No, instead, he drew up the Molotov Plan, which would make countries in the Warsaw Pact pay reparations to the Soviet Union for the losses suffered during the war in those countries, even though they were under control of Nazi Germany at the time and really had no say in the conflict. The Molotov Plan also reorganized all trade networks within the countries of the Warsaw Pact, making all their trade networks centered on the Soviet Union, keeping them from trading with any of the Western allies. With the institution of the Molotov Plan in 1947, we effectively see what would come to be known as the Iron Curtain fall over Eastern Europe. The nickname came about because Stalin created a barrier between Western Europe and Eastern Europe with his institution of the Molotov Plan. After the reorganization of trade in the Eastern Bloc, basically no communication existed between countries in the West and countries in the East, and the influence of the Soviet Union dominated the Eastern Bloc, while the influence of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization dominated Western Europe. With Berlin being located on the east side of the Iron Curtain, but still having half the city under the control of the United States, Britain, and France, it became a volatile location in the world. West Berlin, surrounded by communist East Germany, became a democratic enclave of free market capitalism and elective politics, and Stalin wasn't a fan. While East Germany boasted of their free healthcare and education, it was also suppressed by Stalin's secret police, low wages, little personal freedom, resource exploitation by the Soviet Union, and a ruthless propaganda campaign, painting West Germany as a continuation of Hitler's Nazi Germany. A war-weary public was all too eager to make the bus ride to West Berlin to escape the oppression of the Soviet Union, where they could easily find a train onto West Germany. And in the years after the Warsaw Pact was instituted, the population of East Berlin began rapidly declining. Around 3.5 million German citizens fled East Berlin in the first eight years after the war. Stalin needed a way to keep the population of East Berlin stationary to further fuel his exploitation of them. In 1949, Stalin erected a system of barriers called the Inner German Border between East Germany and West Germany, complete with barbed wire fences, armed guards, and even minefields in some areas. He hoped this would halt much of the defectors before they could leave East Germany, and while it did keep the East German populace inside East Germany, it did not solve the problem of East Germans defecting to West Berlin. Remember, Berlin still rested soundly inside East Germany, with no part of it anywhere close to the East-West German border. 
It was a tiny resistance against the imposing Soviet Union. Stalin officially closed the border to East Germany and the rest of the Eastern Bloc in 1952, imposing harsh restrictions on travel and emigration, but there was still the problem of West Berlin, where such emigration policies did not exist. If people wanted to leave West Berlin for West Germany, France, or anywhere else in Western Europe, it was relatively easy to do so when compared to Stalin's bureaucracy. In 1957, the Soviet Union introduced even more restrictions on passport laws to the Eastern Bloc, making it even more complicated to move between countries, even if you were traveling to other Eastern Bloc countries. The East German populace took notice and could sense that in the near future, leaving East Germany may become impossible. The unintended consequence of the Soviet Union's harsh restrictions was a mass emigration from East Germany to West Berlin and on to Western Europe from 1957 to 1961. Among these defectors were many young and well-educated citizens of East Germany, creating a vacuum that would be nicknamed the brain drain in East Germany. It made me wondering, why didn't Stalin just close the border to West Berlin altogether? Well, West Berlin held one of the most important railway hubs in the country, and many passenger trains passed through it, where East Berliners who held tickets to other cities in East Germany would secretly exit the train when safely in West Berlin. Closing that railway hub would be a huge blow to the already stagnant economy of East Germany, and Stalin recognized that. In 1951, he had begun construction on a new railway hub outside of West Berlin and planned to have it done by 1961, where he planned to set another plan into motion. While Stalin passed away in 1953, this plan was already set into motion and it would be executed just how he planned by his successor, Nikita Khrushchev, who had a habit of ruling with a similar iron fist. In 1961, that railway hub outside of West Berlin was completed and Stalin's master plan was executed. In the night between August 12th and August 13th, beginning at midnight, Soviet troops closed the border between East and West Berlin and began tearing up streets adjacent to that border, setting up barbed wire where the streets had once been. They were beginning construction on a system of fences that would stretch not only between East Berlin and West Berlin, but also surrounding the entirety of West Berlin, making travel outside of the city extremely difficult. By August 17th, the first concrete blocks were being placed that would come to be known as the infamous Berlin Wall. With the swiftness of the Soviet Union's action, many citizens of East and West Berlin were unable to say goodbye to their loved ones, and friends, family, and husbands and wives were separated across a virtually impassable border. With no mode of communication between the sections of the city, many of these relationships were maintained by finding a place on opposite sides of the fence to meet and wave at one another. With the completion of the wall proper, even this became difficult. By 1962, the barbed wire fence was completed. In 1965, it was improved, and the same year, Soviet troops in East Berlin began leveling entire city blocks systematically to make room for the next development of the border. In 1975, the concrete structure that had become so infamous was completed. The wall now had an imposing outer wall, along with an inner wall, 300 feet deeper into East Berlin, creating what would come to be known as the Death Strip, a barren stretch of ground patrolled by searchlights, bunkers, 
and over 180 guard towers dotting the wall, each tower holding soldiers with strict orders to fire upon anyone who attempted to cross the Death Strip into, into West Berlin. To add to the foreboding nature of the wall, segments were reinforced with mesh fencing, signal fencing, anti-vehicle trenches, more barbed wire, beds of nails under balconies that hung under the Death Strip, and violent dogs held on long leashes. Despite these obstacles, during the lifetime of the Berlin Wall, over 5,000 people successfully defected to West Berlin. Though according to official Soviet documents, at least 200 people were killed during their attempts. But expert, experts estimate that this number is much higher. In the decade following the completion of the final phase of the wall, in 1980, anti-wall sentiment in East Berlin and the free world grew exponentially. Popular musicians hosted concerts near the wall and expressed their desire for it to fall, including David Bowie, David Hasselhoff, and Bruce Springsteen. In 1987, President Ronald Reagan delivered his famous address, from which I will read a segment of. Reagan is addressing Mikhail Gorbachev, the then General Secretary of the Soviet Union, and he said, We welcome change and openness, for we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make, that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And in 1989, everything began to change in the Eastern Bloc. The Soviet Union had begun reformations helmed by Mikhail Gorbachev, who Ronald Reagan had been addressing, making the nation more open to civil discourse and a freer market economy. The communist propaganda of the nation had begun to dissolve, and the nations of the Eastern Bloc were itching for change. Stalinist communism had ravaged their economies, and in the Polish legislative election of 1989, following riots in 1988, among other unrest in Poland, the Communist Workers' Party of Poland abandoned their seats in the government, and the communist government that had gone into effect following World War II was dissolved. The country adopted an elective legislature and presidency. Around the same time, the government of Hungary began dismantling the fortified border between Hungary and Austria, where 13,000 refugees immediately fled the Eastern Bloc. Similar events followed in Czechoslovakia. In late 1989, demonstrations began in East Berlin, instigated by a candlelit march led by religious figures, despite East Germany being dominated by a state-sponsored atheism policy. In what would come to be remembered as the 1989 Peaceful Revolution, East German demonstrators rose to include over 70,000 citizens in September of 1989, all chanting, We want out. By November, Almost half a million citizens of East Berlin gathered in the public square to express their dissatisfaction with the travel restrictions in the nation, and in some instances, the demonstration spilled over into the Death Strip, where some demonstrators began crossing into West Berlin uninterrupted. Knowing they were in the world's eye, the soldiers were ordered to allow them to cross. In response to the demonstrations, 
Erich Honecker, who had governed East Germany since 1971, resigned. In response to the Polish Revolution and the protests in East Germany, the countries of Albania, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and Czechoslovakia also did away with the communist rhetoric and adopted multi-party governments. Effectively, the Iron Curtain over Eastern Europe was lifted, and the Soviet Union released any control over these countries, including East Germany. Waves of defectors began traveling from East Germany to Hungary and Czechoslovakia and on to Western Europe. The Soviet Union, plagued by decades of famine, corruption, and oppression, was now a shell of its former self, and would dissolve in only months following these events. It had no power to stop these defections. These waves of defectors began causing logistical problems for the countries surrounding them and governments. And the Politburo of East Germany decided on November 9th, 1989, that the border between East Germany and West Germany would effectively be opened. In a press conference, Gunter Schabowski, spokesman for the Politburo, read aloud that the border would be opened, though he was simply reading from a paper and had not been briefed on the situation. He did not know that the border was meant to be opened the following day to allow time to brief the border guards. Following his remarks, he was quickly asked by a reporter, when do these regulations take effect? Gunter shuffled his papers, attempting to find the answer, but he assumed that it was immediate. He responded, as far as I know, it takes effect immediately, without delay. If Gunter had taken a bit more time to look through his papers, he would have noticed that this was not the plan. But that blunder did give us quite a story. The news spread like wildfire in East Berlin, and only hours after the press conference, thousands of East Berliners were gathering at the wall. Border guards had not been briefed on the press conference yet, and made frantic calls to their superiors for orders. Originally, their orders were to allow only a few people through the border at a time, but eventually, things got out of hand, and at 10.45pm, the border guards relinquished control of the situation, allowing people to enter West Germany with virtually no identification, something unheard of up to that point. On the other side of the wall, citizens of West Berlin waited with champagne, flowers, and embraces. The reunion was documented and broadcast worldwide, and through the night, citizens of West Berlin began jumping up on top of the wall and hammering away chunks of it to keep as souvenirs. November 9th, 1989, would be remembered as the day the wall came down. To give you an idea of what the celebrations that took place were like, comedian Catherine Schmidt wrote a short story detailing what the atmosphere was like. In it, she says, quote, I downed almost an entire bottle of schnapps. I don't know about you, but I think that's a lot of schnapps. The following year, Germany was reunified to the celebration of the world, and the year after, the Soviet Union was dissolved, being reorganized into the Russian Federation, which still exists today. And today, three long sections of the Berlin Wall have been preserved and still stand as a testament to history for those who would like to see what it looked like firsthand. What had once been a symbol of division between the East and West throughout the entire Cold War is now nothing but a memory but a memory that is striking to those who witnessed it firsthand. We can only hope that such division will never again return to Europe or anywhere else in the world. 
Now before I finish, I've got a little souvenir here. I dated a girl for a while who spent a summer in Europe and in Germany. And she knows how much I love history, so she gave me, actually, I'm holding it in my hand right now, a piece of the Berlin Wall. It's cement and it has some blue coloring on it. I'm assuming some kind of graffiti, but but it's so cool that I get to hold this piece of history in my hand. If I shake it, you can probably hear it. Yeah. So this is a particularly fascinating story for me to document because I'm, I get to hold a piece of it in my hand. So I just wanted to say something about that. All right. Well, thank you for joining me this, this, uh, this week on Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. And I hope you'll return next week to hear what I have to talk about next week. Next week is going to be a really, really, really good one. So, all right. Enjoy the rest of your week and I wish you all the best. If you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, and drop a five-star review. It really, really does help us get more people involved about the conversation concerning history. I say that every time, and I'm going to keep saying it. All right, catch you next week.